0: people talk about destroying the planet, we're not going to destroy the planet. Not really, right? I mean, over the course of human history, it's been whacked by asteroids and frozen solid. What we can definitely do is destroy its ability to accommodate us, right? We can destroy our habitat.
1: Hello, and welcome to Working with me, Dan Doriani, hosting a podcast where we explore faith, work, culture, and the way believers can make a difference in their corner of the world. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Elliot Kellner, Director of Commercial Innovation at the Danforth Plant Science Center here in St. Louis. It's an independent nonprofit research organization with unofficial ties to various research universities and a lot of interest in operationalizing science, bringing it into the world in a constructive way in a market economy. I've known Elliot for a number of years. He's a friend of the family, and it's always good to visit. Elliot, I want to let his uh, credentials leak out a little bit over time because they're pretty—they're in- pretty impressive, and I don't want to make anybody feel embarrassed to be in the presence of uh, such a mind. But Elliot is—I'm ma- going to say it this way—he's a master in trees and a PhD in water.
0: I think that's fair. Yeah.
1: yeah. So tell us a little bit about your training and how you got into it, and then later on we'll talk about your turn to the business world. Sure. Welcome, Elliot. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah. So. How, so how I got into environmental
0: science, um, I, have, I grew up in an, an ag family, so that's an important thing to, to say, I think, right at the outset. My mom grew up on a self-sufficient family farm in the Appalachian Mountains, and my favorite childhood memories were all from that farm. Right, running around with my cousins and in the forest and you know through pastures and chasing each other through the barns and um, I so I was I was gifted that love of the outdoors by my family, but you know when I went to college I was I was eighteen and had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I played a lot of frisbee and I stayed up late and I think I got a liberal arts degree, which you know I don't I don't know what what that's really good for but I you know I'm, I was better at reading and writing I think when I graduated with my bachelor's than I was when I started so that's a win. I actually spent some time in the full-time ministry so when after I got out of, of college I was a youth pastor at a church up in Buffalo New York. Um, my father's a minister and so uh, he was connected with that church and my mom was on staff there and so I, I did a couple years in vocational ministry before realizing that that was it was very much not for me. I was i i i i think i bounced around and waffled there for maybe 3 or 4 years working some awful jobs and trying to figure out what i wanted to do with my life and i realized that the the one thing that i knew to be true about myself was that i loved the outdoors and i loved being in the woods and uh you know, that question that people would ask you, like, well, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I would always answer, I would be a forester, of course. You know, like what an obvious and answer. So you start to listen to yourself. Yeah, eventually, <laughs> right? Like right. And, uh, my my girlfriend at the time, now wife, uh, Lauren, eventually took me aside one day and said, you know, if you don't go back to school and pursue this as a career, you are never gonna be happy. <laughs> I think she was she was probably right. She was very prescient. So I, I went back to school to pursue a master's degree in forestry, very much intending to become a forester, right? spend all my time in the woods, live in a fire tower, measure trees and count them. Um, and then at some point during my, uh, my master's, I took a, a left-handed turn into water resource science and, and realized that at least for my brain, I, it's uh, water resource science, it's a, it's a physical science, it's very quantitative, it uses mathematical models to predict how the world is gonna to function to try to understand the way that the environment functions. And that made a lot of sense to me, strangely, as a kid who played Frisbee and studied liberal arts. Uh, it turns out that math was uh, the way that I understood the world. So uh, so my, my master's in trees turned into a PhD in water resource science. And I kind of, I circled back a little bit and you know, most of my research actually focused on trying to understand how agricultural production Impacts our environmental water quality, and and also water quantity, which is a you know that's a ten cent way of just describing you know how how much water is in a stream or in a river or in the ground or in the atmosphere at any given time. And but so very much kind of coming full circle with with those those agricultural roots in my family.
1: That's great. We both live in St. Louis, which is uh, a city with trees, and it's lots of trees. Uh, <clears throat> lots of trees, and it's kind of you, at one point years ago you told me. Fascinating to live in St. Louis because it's uh, sort of a case study in how not to plant trees. That's right. As in people all over the world, to some degree, study how not to plant trees by looking at what we've done in St. Louis. (laughs) And what we've done, and I want you to comment on this, uh, is plant two trees, especially in great numbers, that are really bad trees. Uh, One is the Bradford pear, which has been disenfranchised by the Arboreal Institute or whatever because the branches break all the time and if you put them by the road, they break in the road. If you put them by your house, they break on your house. And, and it smells awful. yeah they, flowers, they don't smell right? good. the you flowers know, a, are pretty but yeah. they smell bad. And the other <laughs> one which in my view is is maybe much worse is the sweet gum tree right. which is uh, very beautiful colors in the fall. It's a healthy tree doesn't give really much shade at all and creates every tree creates thousands of gumballs prickly sticky, a massive messy. Mess. People trip and fall, they break Gotta wear their your shoes ankles. in your front yard. You can't wear shoes <laughs> in your front yard. They destroy lawnmower <laughs> blades. Elliot, tell us how on earth this kind of thing can happen. How do people make mistakes this bad? Uh, since you're a creation care man, right? Right. And you you don't want you wanna prevent that, and yet it does happen. And uh, you know, how can you work your way out of a problem like that?
0: Yeah, that's fine. So it's 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 a good question, right? I mean um... Planting trees in urban areas, metropolitan areas, suburban, I mean, it doesn't matter. Anywhere people are, Mm -hmm. planting trees in those places is a way of promoting human health. Mm -hmm. Um, It also, it can keep your utility bills low if you have shade. Shade, It's it's good for air quality. It's good for lung health, respiratory health. But, you know, we always try to encourage people to plant the right trees in the right places for the right purposes, Mm -hmm. right? Which is kind of a mouthful for sure, but... um, you know, we we people tend to default to what's easiest and to what they know best, and so um, so these
1: are well known trees. They're well known trees. And the Bradford pears look pretty, they grow easily.
0: Yeah, they look pretty. They're popular in the south, mm-hmm. um, and so we've ended up with some trees and some spots where we shouldn't have them. You know, if you go to some parts of St. Louis, you know that 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 small median of grass that's between the sidewalk mm. and the street, you know, about 50 years ago they planted sycamores all all through. Downtown St. Louis, and those sycamores are now huge, and they are mm-hmm. uplifting the sidewalks, and they're uplifting the roads in some spots, and it's mm-hmm. again a, a massive mess, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Sycamores are great trees; they're native Missouri trees. We encourage people to plant them, but it's not a but great. Don't put idea. them between. Don't put them between a the the sidewalk of, and a street. That's highway. right. <laughs> don't Fort put lane. them right next to your house, right? Yeah, right. Um, and we, you know, we have a lot of really beautiful Missouri trees that can accomplish those same. Objectives, you know, trees like redbud trees, which are beautiful and flowering, or if people want shade trees, catalpa is a great native you're, I mean, Missouri you're, tree. You're going where I want to go. Yeah, so uh,
1: let's suppose that we live in the Midwest in general. Like, where right. people, you know, people have kind of cold winters and warm summers, and maybe not the greatest soil. Because some not places everybody has great soil. Yeah, right? Right, some places. Catalpa tree. Yep. What's another one you recommend?
0: Ooh, I mean redbud through and mm-hmm. through. That's one of my one of my personal favorite trees. If you spend enough time in forestry circles, everybody develops their own favorite tree, yeah. right? Okay. Um, I'm am a big fan of if people want large, beautiful trees shade that they trees. will see shade yeah. trees that will see grow in their lifetime and are pretty in the fall. The um, the tulip poplar mm-hmm. is a beautiful Missouri tree. Mm-hmm. Um, you shouldn't plant it too close to your house cuz it can get pretty big and it, mm-hmm. it it does it self prunes which means it just drops its lower branches when it's done with them so you got you shouldn't put it right next to your house but it's a beautiful Put it tree. next to your neighbor's house Yeah that's exactly right next to your neighbor's garage <laughs> right, right. Um <laughs> But yeah, so we we have we have a lot of fantastic trees, and and there are mm. even trees that get no love from the, you know, commercial forestry set trees like eastern red cedar, which are considered mm. trash trees. But if you are if you own property and you want to plant a fence line mm, and have right, some trees right. around it, eastern red, yeah. red cedar is a great tree. So to you plant know you have to there. know your yeah. purpose. Is it's what you're all about up. purpose. Yeah. yeah, what are you trying to accomplish? We got we yeah. got trees for, for every
1: purpose in Missouri. We're we're pretty blessed mm. um, with a. Immense biodiversity of trees. Thanks. Uh, You also uh, spent some time with trees in Morgantown, West Virginia, which is a slightly different, you know, biographical, geographical, Mm -hmm. and you know, the water and the temperatures are a little bit different, not totally different. Mm -hmm. A lot of trees in that part of. I mean, we have a lot of trees here, but there's forests everywhere in places like Morgantown. Yeah, West Virginia. What would you add? What did you learn in Morgantown?
0: Ooh, yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I'll, I'll bring that back to my, my water resource work yes, a little please. bit, because yeah. that was fully what I was focused right. on when I was living in West Virginia. And West Virginia is the most forested state by proportion of, of land. I think it's like 78% forested, which is there's, amazing. There's trees everywhere. There. So there's trees everywhere. The va- I mean, the state is primarily forest, mm-hmm. um, which is amazing because most of that forest was actually harvested during the turn of the... 19th to 20th centuries, right? So They're replanted. And it is all second growth forest by and large. So on the other hand, the water in West Virginia has been treated very badly at times. Unfortunately, yeah. So the, the there's a strip the, mining, that's right. The resource extraction, energy extraction industry has wreaked havoc on water resources in in Appalachia. But forest is one of the best ways that we have of actually mitigating some of those impacts, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, trees use a lot of water. They suck it up out of the ground, right? Everybody learns that kind of in their right. junior high and high school science mm-hmm. days. And um, and those trees can actually, they can bind certain types of heavy metals, certain tree species. And so they can actually be used to... Uh, there's a process that, you know, the Tencent term is phytoremediation. But that's just a fun way of saying that we plant trees in places where there's a lot of contaminants in the ground mm-hmm. as a way of um, actually, removing it from the water, yeah, for one mitigating, thing, yes. mm-hmm. yep, that's right, and yeah. decreasing the the availability of that, those contaminants and those pollutants to actually negatively impact human health or animal decreasing health. Decreasing the availability, in that's the right. sense,
1: <laughs> in the bad sense of availability. That's right, <laughs> in a way that <laughs> you don't want something drink available. Toxic water. The
0: availability of that poison to right, hurt right, you. right, yeah. right. So
1: you want <laughs> an availability you don't want to provide. That's good, and and trees, of course, help. You know. There's a lot of beautiful rivers in West Virginia. There are. I've gone whitewater rafting there a number of times. It's fantastic. Where did you go? New River? New River. Cheat yeah. liver, oh, River. River yeah, yeah. River's in there. That's New great. and Cheat were my, my favorites, I think, would have to say. Anyway, so you know, trees help bring those rivers back, too. They did. But your study there in uh, Morgantown was with the U.S. Department of Agriculture as well as the university. <laughs> And it when was. you were doing that, that was Chesapeake Bay related. Mm-hmm. Chesapeake Bay is another huge and important waterway and mm-hmm. source of water. Mm-hmm. And what did you do there? Yeah, so I so I was
0: on faculty at West Virginia University. So after I finished my doctoral program at University of Missouri um, in water resource science, I took a postdoctoral research fellowship at West Virginia University that then turned into a faculty position. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know the one thing that they never tell you when you pursue a PhD is that from that point forward in your life you're never allowed to turn down a job offer. So <laughs> if some, if you're lucky enough for someone to offer you a job as a person with a PhD, you, you have uh, to no, say I'm yes. Gonna say, unless you <laughs> you know,
1: unless you've published 47 papers then everybody wants to <laughs> At hire least
0: you. early in your career <laughs> right, you have right. to say yes. Uh, but so thankfully that that postdoc fellowship turned into a faculty position and so I was on faculty at WVU and was a full-time research scientist doing the type of work that we were kind of just teasing at for a, a number of years. And then was loaned out, basically, to USDA to provide technical USDA support. USDA is the United
1: States Department of Agriculture. That's right.
0: And there, there's a specific agency under that cabinet department called the Natural Resources Conservation Service, which provides – they administer – Voluntary incentive-based agricultural conservation programs. There's right, so a lot of qualifiers. One. Voluntary, there. not right. involuntary. Right. So we so we you do not mandate give incentives so That's people right. will
1: be attracted. That's right. To processes and certain types of ag
0: practices that we know are better for the environment. Mm-hmm. And you know the way that we have to uh, approach. Those goals is very different in the U.S. than it is in, say, the European Union, where they mandate a lot of those right. agricultural practices. But we don't have sufficient political capital in the U.S. to mandate uh, conservation ag in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so instead, we we entice people to participate in those programs by providing nominal incentives. Mm-hmm. Nominal um, incentives are they just cash
1: sometimes, they or are, sometimes it, typically it's cash will help payments. You. Typical, typically cash payments, but it might be lending them expertise. Right, and, this and would it's not wildly like, lucrative. It's an
0: important thing to un- underline, yeah, right? Like yeah. no no farmer is getting rich by participating right. in an NRCS program, but it does make a historically tight-margined industry, mm-hmm. right, that much more feasible mm-hmm. if you are participating in those programs So it
1: could padding your bottom line. It could enable them to just live a little more comfortably or sure. buy some more equipment and so forth. A lot of that would be then things like fertilizer runoff, would it be things like uh, pig farming, chicken farming, runoff of? Sure. So what is what would you yeah, try so to all... keep out of the Chesapeake Bay? Oh yeah, so I mean the the Chesapeake. That's a great question. And, and what does that? How does that help the world sure. of people in you know Virginia and West West Virginia and Maryland? Sure. Th- that that's a it's a great question. So the Chesapeake
0: Bay water quality in the bay had declined mm-hmm. precipitously over the course of. Ooh, Eight nine decades, mm-hmm. um, and it had gotten so bad that some of the the oyster, oyster fisheries beds. were mm-hmm. basically collapsing. Mm-hmm. Right, so the oyster industry, which is um, fundamental to the economy of the Chesapeake Bay region, um, there you know there are watermen families that have that go back generations. And they were... um, the industry was collapsing. And uh, crabs the... were also being impacted as
1: well. They, they were some kinds. And,
0: and 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 classic fisheries, right? Mm-hmm. But they the water quality had become so abysmal that they it couldn't support that type of aquatic life and, mm-hmm. importantly, that that commercial industry. And so pursuant to a Supreme Court decision in the, the mid to late 90s, um, a multi-institution, uh, multi-agency government effort was uh, cobbled together to try to restore the water quality in Chesapeake Bay. And it included scientists from government agencies, from land-grant universities. I mean, you know, the Chesapeake Bay region, it, it includes parts of six different states. And it's a um, large body of water, not not real deep, if I remember correctly. Not very deep. So, but still a lot of uh, square miles covered. That's right. Uh, but if you think, when, an interesting thing I always like to tell people about the Bay is that the land-to-water ratio, so the the amount of land that actually drains water to the Bay, mm-hmm. so that amount of land, the ratio of that to the actual uh, extent of the bay is about 14 to 1, right? So that's a very high ratio of land to water. Mm. And what that means is that the same way that you would use a magnifying glass mm-hmm. to intensify the sun's light and and start a fire in your backyard as a kid is basically what we're doing with pollutant runoff from those six states as it enters the bay. And so it's led to, unfortunately, high concentrations so, so of So it's very
1: different from, let's say, Lake Superior, ex- yeah, which is absolutely. very, very deep. And compared large. To, yeah, right. Huge yep. and deep. And so you can, uh, don't, we don't want to say this the wrong way, but you can make more mistakes with Lake Superior than with Chesapeake Bay. Is that true it or might false? Have,
0: it might have the capacity to, uh, to buffer those if mistakes. More margin, You right. might say, yeah. Greater
1: margin for error yeah. in the Great Lakes than you would have at, in the Chesapeake Bay. Not that we're advocating carelessness we anywhere. <laughs> so I like something you said a, a couple of minutes ago. You said, uh, we want to k- restore aquatic life and the industries mm-hmm. connected to that. So what I hear is, um, is respect for creation as creation, but also mm-hmm. respect for the people who make use of God's creation, right? Agreed. So uh, you're trying to take care of crabs and oysters, because you know we kind of care about crabs and oysters sure. intrinsically, because everything God created is good. But we also eat crabs and oysters, mm-hmm. and people depend on them. So how do, you, how, how do you try to do it, and what's the challenge, if I may? In trying to you know there's you can go too far in the direction of industry mm-hmm. right and just care about what 's consumed and what pays and what creates a job, and you can also go too far in the direction of just saving a species for the sake of the species mm-hmm. that um, that takes a turn that forgets the people who live in an area sure, so talk us through that how does a how does a practicing scientist do that you You nailed it when you said that you can err.
0: Air- in in both directions of the spectrum, right? Like you can, you can preference business creation and and firm value and industry expansion to the point where you know we have the robber baron era where mm. we're just awash in negative externalities, right? The consequences of that type of what's um, a negative those, externality
1: those. just for the ordinary person? Right, it, it's the
0: consequences that um, that are external to your organization, right? Mm. So that other people have to deal with. Even if like they were the not, even if they're not a customer. That's garage. right. <laughs> that's right. You know, even if they're not a customer or a member of your organization <laughs> or even uh, in, inside your value chain, you're if, harming society at large. That's right, harming mm-hmm. society at large. Right. So, um, and we've seen that, unfortunately, over. The, I, I think in some ways that's the story of the 19th and early 20th centuries, right. Mm-hmm. And then we we come along in the environmentalism movement as trying to swing the needle back in the other other direction, and we're trying to. Um, you know, protect the earth and, and improve the way that we're stewarding the environment and protect our habitat. But to your point, I would, I would agree, and this, this places me maybe in, a, in a, a minority of some of my colleagues, but I would agree that um, we have to make sure that we keep the human element in front of us, right? And, and I think what I have realized over the course of my work, and this is absolutely informed by my faith, is that for me, I think environmentalism is best interpreted as a form of humanism. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the reason that I care about the environment uh, is because I care about people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the reason that I think that the Lord wants me to help steward his environment, his creation, more effectively is because he cares about people and he wants those people to have a, a beautiful habitat to mm-hmm. live healthy, you know, mm-hmm. self-actualized lives. Yeah. People talk about destroying the planet. We, we're we not going to destroy the planet. Not really, right? I mean, over the course of human history, it's been whacked by asteroids and frozen mm-hmm. solid and covered in water and, mm-hmm. you know, awash in microbes. But, all, but all we sorts can of, cause a lot of damage. We can cause a lot of damage. To
1: the people and the animals that live on this planet. And
0: Earth. what we can definitely do is destroy its ability to... Uh, accommodate us, right? Mm-hmm. We can destroy our habitat, mm-hmm. and then its carrying capacity will not include humans for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen that, you know, we've seen extinction level events over the course mm-hmm. of of the history. Or of the maybe Earth could
1: and... sustain instead of a few billion people, a few hundred thousand. That's right. Which means a lot of death. That's right. And that's right. you know
0: that's what we don't want to see. And so it's very much that it's that human element. It's that human objective, right? Mm-hmm. How can I best? How can I best care for God's people? For me, that's by Stewarding the earth, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean... Some, something different for everybody, but
1: you know, I consider that to be my, my personal niche, maybe. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I mean, clean water and healthy trees are very important. At the moment, at this moment, uh, this day, there are huge fires raging mm-hmm. across North America and causing lots of bad smoke mm-hmm. over huge swaths of the continent. And people have breathing problems are impaired. They're mm-hmm. suffering from that. And so we want to take care of we want to take care of the world. That's I like right. to use the phrase creation care. You probably can't use yep. it much when you're working with the United States government. <laughs> you have to talk about habitat and environment. But uh, I I like to with my students with pastors I like to use the phrase creation care.
2: My name is John Perkins, and I'm the executive director of the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. In addition to this podcast, we offer 10 hour faith and work cohorts and conferences on faith and work throughout the United States. Our goal is to equip both formal and informal leaders to make a difference in their corner of the world. To find out more about CFW and to sign up to participate or lead in one of our cohorts, please visit our website at faithandworkstl.org to see how your church or organization can form a faith and work cohort. At the end of today's interview, stay tuned to hear how participating in one of CFW's cohorts inspired Zach Wagner to make a difference in St. Louis, Missouri. Now back to Dan.
1: You're not just doing creation care. You're also in another job now. You're now, uh, we're, if we can switch over sure. to your current task, which is to commercially operationalize the mm-hmm. best new science. So you've added to your master's in forestry and your water resource management PhD an MBA. Right. And so what you're trying to do Is if I you can uh, give me the exact title, but you know you're the director of innovation and incubation Mm -hmm. of ideas at a center for ag tech. Mm -hmm. So back to your roots in ag. Not just as a sidebar. I spent a lot of happy hours on my grandfather's farm. (laughs) Sounds like your happy hours are a lot like my happy hours. They were at times. I think you probably had more hours than I did because he was a grandfather and he was older. But I get the idea. So you were trying to trying to take new plant technology, Mm -hmm. water, plant growth, to agricultural firms, to farmers, Mm -hmm. and get it to the people through businesses, incubating small businesses. In the website, it said that you distributed, I think, $4 million to 16 firms. At least at one point, that was a snapshot. That's not a huge amount of money. That's 250,000 each. Mm -hmm. Um, So how does it work? What do you do? Yes, yeah, so my so my role at the Danforth
0: Center as director uh, of commercial innovation it's it's a dual role. So on one hand, I, I had, there's an internally facing component to my work. So I work with uh, we have thirty two separate research teams at the Danforth Center that include two hundred and eighty full time research scientists. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a vast capacity and a, a truly a globally unique set of expertise um, in in plant sciences. And so I, I work with those teams to identify commercially viable opportunities, right? Uh, technologies that we think might be able to make it in the marketplace, and um, and then figure out. You know, we 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 look for ways to support that. We have a, a proof of concept fund where mm-hmm. internally, again, with our teams, we offer pre-commercial seed grants to help them develop those ideas and get them to a spot where they,
1: you know, these research teams could. Uh, potentially file a patent application. So in other words, you, you give these, you give people a chance to give you some feedback hmm. so they can say that works, that doesn't work. If you've made this adjustment on the ground, as a farmer, I'm telling you this adjustment would be a good one. Is that what you do or not really? Um, so at, with the internal research
0: teams, it's, it's I would say, further up the value chain than that. Okay. We're we're not we're not downstream enough to be working with farmers directly. We're not
1: farm, with farmers yet.
0: Not yet. Okay. Yeah. But with with those internal teams we're looking for technologies for which there is a market need, right? Okay. That 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 is that is addressing some sort of exigent unique market need, right? And so maybe they're strengthening a patent application or maybe the the idea that technology is substantial enough to justify the creation of a new company, a startup, right, mm-hmm. that could be spun out of the Danforth Center. Mm-hmm. So that's one role that I have, the internal role. But then the external role is that I work with ag tech companies, early stage startups all the way to strategic corporates, and I look mm-hmm. for... Like, give me
1: an example. of Like, who do you work with? Big corporations. People would know.
0: Bear, right? Bear okay. Monsanto. Right. Former
1: Monsanto, now mm-hmm.
0: Bear. right? It's a great example. And we look for collaborative research opportunities, places mm-hmm. where we can leverage... The unique resources of the danforth center and by resources i mean not just our you know top flight instrumentation and our amazing greenhouse facility but specifically the people right Mm -hmm. the scientists that we have the expertise that's been collated there ways that we can leverage that amazing expertise to support the development of these technologies that can improve the sustainability of agriculture and then get them commercialized, get them so to market as quickly said, as possible.
1: So, uh, make it sustainable. Mm-hmm. Well, that means like taking care of the soil for many, many years. Is that what it means? Or what does it mean? Yeah, to trying to make it sustainable.
0: So trying to decrease those negative outcomes that of, of traditional agricultural production, which everyone is... Like? Oh, like what we've seen in the Chesapeake Bay, okay, right? So, it. you know... Uh, runoff of pollutants mm-hmm. and fertilizer and pesticides mm-hmm. and or looking, killing
1: animals unnecessary. You know? Right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean
0: that's right. You know, there yeah. there are uh, unintended consequences on regional biodiversity. Right. So mm-hmm. you know, you might be spreading a pesticide on a field right to get a target pest, but then you're you killing 10 some others. Unintended. You know, and then which you've... might be benefit. It might be the food that some bird we love eats. That's right. Or it might be a pollinator that we desperately Mm -hmm. need, right? right? like honeybees. Um, And so we're trying to make agriculture more sustainable by decreasing the negative impacts Mm -hmm. of ag production on the environment. Mm -hmm. And also on human health. Because to be sure, some of those traditional products that work very well, traditional synthetic pesticides that were really great at killing insects were also carcinogens, right? And Mm -hmm. so they weren't just bad for the environment. They were also bad for the farmers that were using them. And so we're looking for better ways that we can uh, accomplish those same objectives while being friendlier to humans. Yeah, so you're threading that (laughs) needle.
1: You're trying to take care of the world and people at the same time. That's right. Which is, I think, of course, again, we agree where we need to be. Is it hard to work with ag? You know, it's uh, traditional industries, long-standing industries tend to be the word is the reputation is a little bit less quick to embrace innovation. Of course, on the other hand, you can't stay in business very long while being a fool. So, is it easy to work with ag or not? I'm gonna. I'll let you choose that question or the sure. other one. When you said Bayer, Monsanto, some people. You know who would listen to this would probably cringe mm-hmm. and say oh i thought i liked elliot now i realize <laughs> he is he's in cahoots with the dark side monsanto <laughs> those those monsters um can we, maybe we can just agree that every big corporation does a lot of really good things and also maybe makes some mistakes and monsanto might fit in that category with every gigantic now it's bear uh, every gigantic corporation. So you can I want you to comment on both, but uh you're happy to work with Bayer.
0: I am, yes. And and I, I would say that working with with you know big strategic ag corporations, ag tech startups, just the industry generally is I mean, I, I hate to use this word because it sounds trite, but it's it's easy. This is a okay. this is a, these these it's a group of people that are easy to work with. And mm-hmm. the, I think the reason for that is, you know, that old adage, right? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. This is an innovation-friendly industry because mm-hmm. this is an, an industry with exigent needs, right, mm-hmm. for new products, new practices, new ways of accomplishing um, the, the traditional objectives of feeding the world and uh, preserving the environment. So there are there are real needs, and because of those needs... These corporations, I think, are very open to innovative ideas and, so and ways both of doing You of answered both my business. questions at yeah. once. Oh, I appreciate that. Good job.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, for for those of us who study the Bible a lot, there's that parable of the sower, mm-hmm. and the good seed produces 160 and 30 fold what was sown, mm-hmm. meaning one seed creates 100 more seeds or 60, mm-hmm. which at that time was a phenomenal yield. Right, phenomenal to one is not phenomenal anymore yeah <laughs> it's not it's bad it's terrible <laughs> and plant science is uh, you know and God gives us our minds to make use of that um, is plant science is the way we've gotten there right absolutely
0: and you know again kind of going going back to what we were mentioning before right keeping that human element in front of us at all times as as followers of Christ right since I I consider that to be key part of my mission here. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is unlikely, you know, as a scientist, you're never allowed to use the term impossible. So let's just say it's highly unlikely that we're going to be able to feed 8 billion people, much less 10 billion people using traditional Mm -hmm. modes of agricultural production, Right. right? It's not, we're not going to feed the entire world through a collection of smallholder farms Mm -hmm. that um, are using no crop inputs or no No next-gen tech. Yeah, that's just—it's not going to happen. And so, you know, realistically, the U.S. is the breadbasket of the world. We produce the vast majority of the world's grain. And the reason that we've been able to drive yields so high and the reason that we're able to feed um, so many people in the world, recognizing that there are people whose needs are still unmet— Yes, right. um, —but— the success has been due to scientific innovation, mm-hmm. and on the part of we also have pretty good soil. In we've a lot got of places. we've got great soil in a lot of places, and yeah. so we're doing our best to protect it. But mm-hmm. um, but those scientific innovations were driven by. People working in government labs and at universities mm-hmm. and at places like Monsanto, right? Mm-hmm. There are missional scientists who are at Monsanto yeah. who cared about feeding the world. And that's one of the reasons that we can do what we can do now.
1: Yeah.
0: And why 200 bushel an acre corn is a reality as opposed to mm-hmm. a pipe dream like it yeah. was 50, 60 years ago. Yeah.
1: And I'm guessing that you and I both know fervent believers who are scientists at Monsanto and they're trying to feed people. That's their life's mission. That's right. And yes, Monsanto probably does things that get in the paper in you uh, know way that doesn't cast them. Of course, they don't exist anymore, but you know, cast them in a poor light. But honestly, who doesn't make mistakes? Yeah, right. Um, give us a success story. Can you give us a success story? Are you free to do that. We'll do sure, one absolutely. more broad question, and we'll go to rapid fire questions. Success story of uh, a product or an innovation that you helped in God's providence. You're not boasting but you know you helped get down from the lab to the world of agriculture yeah, so I would say so. I'm I'm still new on the
0: commercialization side, mm-hmm. right? So I've I've been in my current gig about 18 months. Okay, and so you so might not have a
1: robust story yet. But.
0: Because a good thing to realize about ag innovation is that uh, for these new products, the time to market. Mm-hmm. So the time from when an idea is you know generated to when you could actually see a product on your kitchen table or in it's a farm measured field. Measured in years, it, ten to 15 years typically, yeah. if it, if everything works well and it's fast. You have something um, promising, Can but you tell we do. Us about we have. To, you know, you know, we, we, we
1: might see in a few years. Absolutely. So we, we have
0: this great program that we run at the Danforth Center called the Wells Fargo Innovation Incubator. So okay. it's totally funded by the Wells Fargo Foundation. Mm-hmm. And it going back to some numbers that you shared earlier, you were sharing numbers about that that I, we call it IN2, the IN2 program. So we mm-hmm. provide non-dilutive grants. So that means that uh, we're not taking an equity stake in a young mm-hmm. company. Instead, they're given the money. Uh, with, with I shouldn't say no strings attached because they're programmatic elements that they You're have to satisfy. You're not purchasing but part of the company. We're not purchasing part of the company. Right. Um, we're providing them funding to help. Uh, and then we also provide them the resources and expertise of the Danforth Center and our mm-hmm. scientists to help validate and develop and de-risk their technologies, mm-hmm. right? And try to get them to market that much faster. And there there is a local, there's a St. Louis success story that it, from last year that actually... Uh, includes that program. So a a local firm called Covercress, which developed one of the first new crops in the Midwest in the last 20, 30 years. That that company, Covercress, was started from some retired scientists from Monsanto looking for a way to develop a cover crop, so crops that would be planted in the off season in the Mm -hmm. Midwest during the wintertime to protect your soil, improve soil fertility, uh, decrease rates of erosion, which mm. that's one of those big water resource issues in the bay, right, in, right. The, in, the, Gulf in the Gulf of Mexico. Gulf of Mexico, that's with right.
1: The huge tail on the Mississippi that's River, right. you yeah. can the, see now the
0: hypoxic zone, mm. right, which has a lot to do with those those rates of landscape erosion. Mm-hmm. But so cover crops reduce all all of all of those negative externalities. Like we mentioned, the trick is is that these programs that USDA has been running via those incentive based opportunities. Uh, the rates of market adoption are pretty low. They don't have, mm. you know, a lot of producers don't participate because the incentive they receive is not actually sufficient. It's not
1: adequate to it's for their ex, you know, for the outlay of labor and right. their machinery and so forth. That's exactly right.
0: And so these the, so these former uh, Monsanto scientists realized that we needed a cash cover crop, right? Mm. Some sort of crop oh. that could be harvested you can and sold. Actually,
1: sell it. Somebody so, eats it, or an animal maybe eats it. That's
0: right, and so they they developed uh, this new crop. So using. A, a- Plant called pennycress, which was has traditionally been considered a weed across North America. Farmers have been fighting it in their fields for generations. It's very hardy. So it's there. It's there. It grows <laughs> all over the place. It grows easily, <laughs> uh, and it's it's easy. It's unfortunately easy to grow. Uh, uh, yes. But they through the, you know uh, a variety of um, technological approaches, including like some accelerated selective breeding. that okay. we, we helped them with at the Danforth Center. Mm-hmm. They were able to. Identify the genetic trait in pennycress that was responsible for oil concentration in the seed. So those seeds are oil rich, uh, but there wasn't enough oil to make it economically viable to crush badly. and extract mm-hmm.
1: them. Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: So they were able to identify that gene and then maximize the expression. Pop it up, put it okay. on steroids. That's right. Maximize the expression of that gene. Until now, they were able to actually, they've, they've created a new crop, which they've called covercress that... And the, it's oil. There's enough oil in the seed to make it economically viable to what crush you, what and What would you use it. it for? Biodiesel. Biodiesel. So they signed a commercial agreement with Bungie, which is a large uh, strategic ag corporation headquartered here in St. Louis, and also Chevron. So oh, a, a okay. joint venture with Bunge and Chevron. And so Bungie, so Covercrest manufactures the, the seed that they sell to farmers. Farmers plant it in their fields in the off-season to protect the soil. Then they harvest it, and in the spring they sell what they harvested to Bungie. Bungie crushes and extracts the oil. They sell the oil to Chevron, and Chevron includes it in biodiesel to try to reduce the amount of greenhouse gas if coming I had from a, our an fuels. An applause button. Right. I would press the <laughs> applause button. Right Cover now. Crest is an amazing story. <laughs> it's a great track? success of the St. Really Louis really AgTech really ecosystem, crazy. Danforth Center, and our scientists uh, and our facilities were key components in that success That's got to feel very, very good.
1: Agreed. So let me uh, switch to things that make you feel good. We'll go through our rapid-fire questions, (laughs) all right? The first question I think I want to ask you is maybe not totally rapid-fire, but I'm just going to ask it this way. Is there a a theme from the Bible or a Bible passage that guides you as you think about these things, as you Mm. meditate? Is you don't have to have. I didn't tell you I was going to ask this question. No, that's so okay. So you might not have the answer. But if you do, tell us what it is. So,
0: Genesis 2.15, mm-hmm. Adam is created. Mm-hmm. And it says that God placed Adam in the garden to work it and take care keep of it. Keep it.
1: Yes, yeah, right.
0: To work yeah. it and keep it. Keep in, it or take care ESV. of it, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, nurture it is right. the idea. And then, yeah. and, you know, so that kind of uh, interesting passage, right, about kind of Adam's purpose. Mm-hmm. But what I think is so even doubly interesting is that then in Genesis three twenty three, when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, mm. it says they were banished to work the land from which he was taken,
3: mm.
1: to work the ground from which he had been taken. And of course, the passage also mentions thorns and thistles. That's right, that, as well.
0: And yeah. and so what I think is so amazing is that in in both in both situations, right, pre sin, pre fall, mm. and then post sin, post fall, mm. he's still placed where he is to work and steward mm-hmm. creation. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, at least to me, that speaks to a, a fundamental component of, of my role, which is you would call it care you know creation care. And for me, it's environmental stewardship, right? Mm-hmm. Stewarding the Lord's creation. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm convinced that that's
1: um, one of the major reasons that I'm here. Mm. That's good. Um, I'll also say the way you... That passage... Uh, Genesis 2.15, along with 3.23, as you say, also gives a counterpoint to the misconception about the Bible, which is, you know, it says, well, Adam and Eve are supposed to rule the earth and exercise dominion over it, which is true. Mm -hmm. And the word dominion is a very ugly word in our culture right now. Uh, But it also counters that by saying, guard it, take care of it. That's right. So uh, we govern, we do, and we take care. That's great. So... Let me uh, switch over then if I may to more explicitly rapid fire questions. So the first one is, what do you like most about your work? I love working in agriculture because it's a it's a it's a unique industry full of really fantastic people. Um if you had 1 minute, let's say it's a really long elevator ride um at a conference with a newcomer to your field, which in this case is technology that draws on science and makes a difference in the world what would you say to them if you could say one give one tip to a bright young 23 year old who wants to go into this field what would you say so first off i would say just you know
0: solid professional tip is to focus attention on on building a collaborative professional network right Mm. make network connections nurture those connections um build partnerships where you can Mm. because it is absolutely critical to your other people will always be critical to your success mm, that's right but i know you said you asked for one thing i'm Let's gonna say i'm say gonna two. give two sure. things. Okay. uh the other thing and this is something that i realized when i was uh actually a research scientist at west virginia university is that there's a big difference between skills and gifts mm. skills and talents And you know, skills are things that we develop, we build ourselves uh, through hard work. But talents and are and gifts, obviously, are things that we're given. Mm. I believe by the Lord. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, it's taken me a long time, but I've realized what what my skills are and what my talents are, and I'm leaning into my talents. And Mm. that's one of the reasons that I am in St. Louis, working for the Danforth Center, and and working in the commercial sphere is because I made the decision to spend more time on, and maybe more attention, maybe more focus, uh, prioritizing those talents as opposed Mm. to the the analytical skills. Yeah.
1: Uh, Next question. Is there anything people get wrong about plant research that you would like to correct? Sure. So two things. Number one is that there's a lot
0: left to do. Mm. There's a lot of work remaining. There are Mm. knowledge gaps that, that still remain about you know, the interactions of plants with the soil and with microbial communities in the Mm. subsurface, there's a lot of work left to do. And the work is pertinent to improving not just the effectiveness of ag, so how much food we produce and how nutritious that food is, but also the sustainability of agriculture. Mm. So, you know, again, minimizing those negative consequences Mm. to traditional production. So there's a lot of work left to do, and and scientists, especially the scientists at the Danforth Center, are, are really kind of at the forefront of of pushing those envelopes and trying to advance agriculture and but it you know we really it requires every tool in the toolbox mm-hmm. and i think that there's been a tendency a cultural tendency in america especially over the course of the last 20 years to be reductive and to try to limit the number of tools that are in our toolbox as scientists, and mm-hmm. genetic editing is is the best example of that, right? Mm-hmm. There was this fervor over, you know, transgenic mm-hmm. plants. Monsanto was producing circa 2010 and 12, mm-hmm. and you know, the GMO battle. And mm-hmm. if you ask a person on the street, you know, are you pro or con GMO? Everybody's like, oh, Everybody's we're against, against GMO, Franken plants. And then you open their cabinets, and yeah, every pack, place, it's yeah. of course. And right. but again, th- those those techniques, those technologies. Are one of the reasons that we are able to feed eight billion people in the world. Recognizing there are people who still don't have their needs met, but it's, thank you for saying that. Yeah. It's 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 core to the work, and so it's important that we we leave all the tools in the toolbox and make all those tools positively available.
1: Mm.
0: <laughs> so. I like that. All right, last question. Sure. What do you do to relax? I still spend time outside. The fun you still thing play now, frisbee? I do still play frisbee. <laughs> okay. uh, but I will say that the uh, the change now. I have three little kids, so yeah. now I spend time outside with you my kids. You throw frisbee
1: wobbly and slowly, oh, very slowly and easily.
0: But I've got so I, my my kids are young. They're seven, five, and two. Mm. And my seven year old and five year old are getting to be pretty good frisbee throwers. Oh, yeah. yeah, So it's yeah. it's exciting for me to see. But mm. but we hang out outside together as much as we can. That's that's, that's my favorite thing to do.
1: So. Elliot, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Dr. Elliot Kellner, research scientist who tries to put the results of research to practice in the external world, taking care of creation, and taking care of people. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Working with Dan Doriani is a production of the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. We seek to promote faithfulness in the workplace, in education, in discipleship, and in the stories of believers who've applied their faith at work. If you want to put your faith to work and change your corner of the world, visit our website, the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. Look for faithandworkstl.org, that's one word. We'll help you start a cohort with like-minded believers who also want to practice their faith at work. This podcast is donor-supported. To keep us going, please donate on our website, Maybe more importantly, you can support us by listening, by subscribing, by sharing, by liking us, by posting us on your favorite platform, or go old school and tell a friend. My name is John Perkins,
2: and I want to thank Zach Wagner for joining us today on uh, on the podcast to talk a little bit about his experience with uh, the Center for Faith and Work. So. Uh, If you don't mind, Zach, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do?
3: Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, I am a wealth advisor, a financial planner. I am a partner at Fortify Wealth, which is in downtown Kirkwood. Uh, Essentially, I help people make good decisions with their dollar, anything that involves a dollar sign. Talk a little bit about, as a believer and working in the world of
2: money, a lot of times there is a discomfort, like an inherent discomfort for Christians to talk about money to to have a large amount of it there, there's there's sort of a, a
3: dissonance there i'm still dealing with it if i'm being quite honest uh, you know i'm a i'm a pastor's son and my dad uh left i was 7 when he left a relatively decent paying job with a good future to become a pastor and to not only become a pastor but in a small denomination in a small town and so i didn't grow up without anything um, we we were just fine but I grew up knowing we didn't have what other people had and so it's this weird push and pull of when I started my career I didn't want to become a pastor I wanted to go earn I, I am very entrepreneurial I wanted to make money but there's also this feeling that if you make money or more money than your father did that there's a betrayal it's mm-hmm. this weird, Kind of push pull desire versus guilt that no one laid on me it, it wasn't it was all self-imposed but there's also this idea that i don't know that finances in general i don't know if it's that wealth is anti-faith or anti-god which i don't believe at all but there's this push pull that we that i feel quite acutely on a regular basis and i think that if we really the one place we can go to examine who am I in light of what God has done for me? Am I a Christian? We can find some of the answers to that if we would examine where we spend our money. Am I on the throne or is God on the throne? And I think those are some important areas, not necessarily to condemn ourselves, but to spend time searching ourselves and and do we behave in the way we actually believe.
2: Like multitasking is fine when it comes to tasks, but you can't really multitask your heart's priorities, right? I mean, it's like Things have to stay in their lane or else things get really confused quickly. So we could keep on talking about that, but I want to redirect it back to Faith and Work specifically. And so given all of that context, what was it, maybe it's precisely because of the context, but what was it that led you to want to be a part of, of the
3: cohort? It was really outside of that, uh, to be honest with you. To say I wanted to be a part of the cohort, it was something I was asked if I would participate in and i said yes mainly because um, i love dan and, and and his teaching and i knew that it would be it would be done well like to what extent had you really
2: drilled down into how your faith in particular really helps inform drive intersects with your work where was it before and then having gone through the cohort how did it
3: shift the just change it's it's always something that's been on my mind i would say like how how do we go about our days doing secular work but for god in a way you know the scriptures clear like we are to be a secular person and a spiritual person we we are who we are and so it's always on my mind but but never really thought about it more than that what what really happened is i have a i have a client that I I enjoy both as a client and as a, as a friend, he was a client first and became a friend. And this particular client happens to be Jewish. He called me up one day and he started the conversation and he said, you're a Christian, right? And you know, if someone starts a conversation like that, you're in trouble, you have something to answer. Right. And he had recently sold a business and had done very, very well. And he said, Hey, I have this friend who's a Christian and he has three times more money than I do. But he doesn't want anything. And I know that if I sold my house and got the next bigger house, that I'd be happy. Or if I sold my boat and got the next bigger boat, then I would be happy. And I know, I know that if, you know, I would just be able to take this trip, I would, I would be fulfilled. He says, but I'm not. And I keep wanting and I keep wanting more. Why does my Christian friend not want anything? And I keep thinking these things are going to fulfill me that don't fulfill me. I was stunned because I had not a great answer.
2: Okay, so talk about how the experience of the actual cohort itself began to shape and inform some of your views on this subject.
3: Well, I mean, first, the curriculum was pretty good. Um, walking, through, walking through the curriculum was good, but I think where, where I decided that I knew I needed to focus, there's this final project at the end that Dan hints about at the beginning, but doesn't really give a lot of direction for until later. And um, it was more through we break out into the cohort, into discussion groups, and we talk about the things that are on our minds. It was in those discussion groups where the natural discussion of what we were talking about, whether it was their businesses or my business, started. we started to have conversations that just went towards the way we handle our money or our resources in general, the way we handle our employees, the way we handle what we do with our businesses, how we do our businesses, uh, the way that the Bible and God impacts those things. And for me, most of my days are spent, most of of my hours during the day are spent helping people with their money. And so this discussion naturally came through resources and it became very clear kind of where I was going to spend my project time. Really, one of the central parts of the cohort is a project.
2: And the pr- the idea of the project is a specific per the individual application of one's faith to their vocation. Um, and it you know it begins to take shape over the course course of uh the, the classes and the weeks that everybody meets, and by the end of the cohort, the idea is then to present and some you know, whether it's a document, page long or whatever. The plan for this project and then after we disband then folks are then going to integrate that project into their into their workplace so and the, and the idea there is that that ultimately we, we talk about things that seem very heady i mean they're theological they're uh you know it engages our minds but at the end of the day what we're really about and what we want to see is that our faith has some practical application in the world that it begins to take shape in our practical lived out lives, right? Uh, it's not something that just, you know, we can have conversations about all day long, but then there's no point at which it it begins to be real. So the project is designed to address that. So tell us about your
3: project and what's going on with it. So so the project, I knew that it had to be a curriculum of some sort to walk believers specifically through the financial planning process as believers. That, that, that Jesus matters and Jesus has something to say about this. And it impacts us not only by what we do, but by how fulfilled we tend to be in life. But the challenge is, is there's rules-based that say, do this, do this, do this, that you know, A plus B equals C. And I find that my faith journey almost is never uh, linear. It's got much more depth to that, and and so I did. I became very overwhelmed. And so what I what I wound up doing for my project was trying to organize my thoughts in a way that then curriculum could be built on top of that, on those thoughts, or uh, or at least some sort of teaching that I could do, you know, with a couple across the table as we went through the secular financial planning process that would piggyback for people of faith.
2: Tell folks that are listening why they should join a cohort and and what you enjoyed the most about it.
3: Dan's teaching and his ability to weave scripture with experience and even secular wisdom, just it really guided you through the entire entire cohort. And so just the teaching was fantastic. I just can't say enough about, about the curriculum itself. Secondly, doing it with a cohort. And being with the same people being a part of their projects and discussing their projects was energizing i made new friends i had old friends that were very helpful in helping me develop my thought so the interaction part of it was fantastic first of all other people's projects you know some of them were were as simple as how do i get partners to get along and lead Something as simple as how we treat each other, and other things were as grand as redesigning a healthcare concept. And so, getting to be a part of those uh, was very energizing. was a lot of fun, uh, and it was it was just fun to be a part of it. So there were there. I guess that's three things. So the curriculum itself was fantastic. The cohort, being with other business leaders, learning from them, hearing from them, being involved. And then being immersed uh, and learning about their projects and what they're trying to accomplish was was energizing. Those three things are reason enough to get involved. Well, that's fantastic. Thanks, Zach, so much, man, for
2: taking some time today. And uh, my pleasure chatting with us. So glad to do it.